Welcome everybody. It's good to see you back and um, tonight we're going to hear from somebody that I know professionally. Um, Sherry Anderson is a 1990 graduate of McEachern High School. She's a Powder Springs native. She went to Georgia State University, got her degree in microbiology, got her minor in chemistry, and as pretty she is today, she's a convicted felon. Spent time in prison, major charges, 20 years of drug addiction, but today she's a radically changed human being. She's a beautiful woman. She's gonna tell you her story of redemption and hope and what she learned, and um, we're not going to say a whole lot more about that because you know Sherry's going to you know share a lot of that with you. She has agreed that if uh, after 8:30, if some of you want to hang around and ask her questions, she's agreed to hang around a little bit. But um, you're in for a treat. We took her to dinner tonight, and I've heard a lot about what she's going to say, and it's uh, you'll hear God all over this. So Sherry, I'm going to pray for you, and then give you this lapel mic. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for bringing us back again for another season and for, uh, Father, opportunities to witness uh, miracles, God. And we just thank you for Sherry and uh, the wonderful redemptive work you've done in her life, how you've changed her, you've made her into the beautiful woman she is today, and uh, she mentors and helps so many other women today, Father, because of the experiences she's been through. We just thank you for her boldness and her courage to be here tonight to share very personal matters with us. We just pray, Lord, that you'll use her in a mighty way, that you'll speak through her in a mighty way, Lord, and we'll leave here encouraged with nuggets of hope and wisdom, Father, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Welcome, Sherry. Thank you. I want to thank all of you for having me tonight um, and everyone coming out to hear, hear my story. So um, I am hoping to encourage you guys um, just to instill hope um, that there... Um, that people can change, that God can do miraculous things in people's life and transform their lives. And that no matter how far you fall, he can bring you back up out of it. If it wasn't for him, I wouldn't be standing before you right now. If it wasn't for just a radical encounter with him, I would not be standing before you right now. So although um, John prayed, I would like to open up in prayer as well because I need his help tonight. Um, to just anoint my words and share what is going to glorify him and, and, and not try to glorify myself or anything that I've been through. So if you'll just give me a moment to pray. Um, dear Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you for this opportunity, this opportunity to share what you have done in my life, the changes that, that you have made and just the trans transformation that you have have made in me, Father. I just want to thank you and give you all the glory, Father. And I just pray that you would anoint my words, Father, that um, what comes out of my mouth would be things that would glorify you, that would instill hope, that would encourage, Father, um, and just show the depths of what you brought me out of and just how powerful you are, how powerful your word is, and how just putting my trust, our trust in you, makes all the difference in the world. May you get all the glory and all the honor and all the praise. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. All right. So I want to start off by telling you guys a little bit about myself and about my family. 
and where I came from. I'm gonna sit and kind of get comfortable. I want this to be informal because I'm a little bit nervous with all these people in the room. And so this kind of keeps me calm and, and makes it not so formal. Um, this is my mother and father, um, Alan and Shirley Smith. Uh, I am gonna try to keep it together. It's uh, still really fresh. I lost them in December of last year within two weeks of one another. And uh, I've dealt with a lot of guilt because of my past and the things that I've done and the, the years of addiction, the, the years that were taken away from our relationship and just the time that I could have spent with them. But what gives me, what gives me peace is knowing that they saw me sober the last year of their life. Um, I will be sober two years the 15th of this month which is a huge, huge, huge accomplishment for me. <laughs> um, thank you, thank you. And, and it's, it's all due to my relationship with the Lord because I would not be sober otherwise. Um, to tell you a little bit about my family, my dad was a deacon in the church, my mom was the organist. I grew up in church. We were in church every Sunday, every Sunday night, on Wednesday night. I went to you know, youth retreats, youth camp, vacation Bible school as a child. I even taught vacation Bible school at, at one point. Um, I remember when I was in elementary school, this was uh, probably, well, the only time I ever opened up my Bible before I went to prison anyway, I memorized the 23rd Psalm in order to win a Bible at church. So, like, my point in saying all that is that my parents had me, I have two older brothers, they had us uh, actively involved in church. They were actively involved in church. Um, I didn't, even though I was actively involved in church, I really didn't understand uh, what it meant to have a relationship with Jesus. I never truly understood why he went to the cross, why that was necessary. I was telling John and Fair over dinner that I didn't even understand, you know, back in um, a long time ago, you know, why they were doing animal sacrifices and why that was necessary. Like, even though I was in church, I just, I didn't have the knowledge um, that, you know, most people have when they're, when they're brought up in church. Um, let me show you another picture of my family. This is all of us. This is, uh, I have two brothers and they have kids. I have no children, um, but I get my fill of children from, from my two older brothers. So uh, I just, you know, wanted to show that picture just to let you know that I came from a good family, a family that, uh, that raised me right a family that instilled uh, values in me, that taught me right from wrong. Uh, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't brought up to be a drug addict. Uh, I'm the only person in my family that has ever went to jail or prison. It's just not something that I, that I come from. It's not uh, the background that I come from. One of my brothers is a deacon in his church and a, and a Sunday school teacher. So. And my point in sharing that is that, you know, sometimes no matter what parents do, like my parents, they did all the right things. I don't come from trauma. I don't come from abuse. Uh, I come from a really good family, but I still made bad decisions. 
and I still got addicted to drugs and it still took me down a path that I thought I would never go down, that I'd always said I would never go down. Um, this is me and, me and my father. When I was in high school, I was the 1990 McEachern Homecoming Queen. Um, I show that picture not to, to glorify myself, but just to, to show you guys once again that my background was not what you typically think of someone who is a heroin addict. That is my drug of choice, is heroin. I was an IV heroin user. As a matter of fact, I would put whatever I could get my hands on in my veins at one point. I always said that I would never use a needle. I always said that I would never use heroin. And I became and did all the things that I said I would never do and a person that I said I would never become. Oh, let me go back to that. I don't want to show that one yet. I want to tell you also, um, I went to college. I went to Georgia State University. I have, like John said, I have a degree in microbiology, a minor in chemistry. I was doing everything right, so I thought. Um, when I was in high school, I was a big partier. Uh, I drank on the weekends. All my friends drank. Uh, we went to each other's houses when parents were out of town, having parties that sort of thing, but I never tried anything harder than, than the alcohol or marijuana. I did smoke a good bit of marijuana in high school. Um, when I graduated from high school, I went straight into college to Georgia State University. I, I met someone, I ended up getting married when I was 19 years old to someone that I thought was the love of my life. It didn't turn out that way. Um, but I was brought up in a family that there is no divorce. My parents weren't divorced. My brothers, they're, they're married, happily married. They're not divorced. So to me, when I said I do, that meant forever. And that was my intention, although it didn't work out that way. My parents were married for 61 years, just to give you an idea. Of, and so that was one thing that I can remember growing up that was really heavily instilled in me is just the importance of being faithful to your husband, being faithful to your wife, um, and just th that relationship between my parents that you honor one another. You put God first and you honor one another. And just the importance of your virtue, uh, that was really instilled in me. Was was my, my virtue in, in saving myself for marriage. I was a big partier, you know. I was gonna go out and get drunk and, and raise cane on the weekends, but for some reason that stuck with me that, you know, I wanted to save myself for marriage. So, I, like I said, I did get married at 19, pretty young, but I, again, I thought he was the one for me. Um, as time went on, uh, I learned that he was unfaithful, that he'd been cheating on me with, with not just one, but multiple women, some of them good friends of mine, some of them I didn't know, um, and it was devastating for me. Uh, as all this is happening, and this is really personal, I, I told John and Fair at dinner, I wasn't sure if I should share this, but it is, it's important for, I guess, you to understand the toll that it had on my self-esteem because of this. My, my husband was my first. He was the first person I had ever been with in an intimate way. And so 
when he started cheating on me with other women, he had no interest in me anymore in that capacity. And I thought something was wrong with me. I thought I wasn't doing something right. I thought I didn't, you know, I, I, uh, that, that I didn't know just how to make my husband happy in that way. And again, I thought that, I thought I was too fat. I thought that I was ugly. I thought that there was something wrong with me. And I, and I wanted to change it. I wanted to make sure that uh, another man didn't feel the same way about me, that I didn't have to go through that again. We end up getting a divorce as a result of it. To this day, he still doesn't acknowledge the fact that he was unfaithful. And really, that's all I, I really wanted was him to acknowledge that. And instead, we went through this period of time where at times I thought I was crazy. Was I imagining this? Was I just being paranoid? Was I just being, you know, when it, a, a crazy woman who's who's thinking things that that's not true. But when you have enough people coming out of the woodworks telling you the same thing, you've got to be an idiot or a fool not to believe them over time. Um, and there was also other other proof, other you know factors that um, it just made it obvious to me. And you know, I was the last one to know, and that was crushing too. I felt stupid. I felt like an idiot. I felt like. Um, here I am, I've been married to this man almost eight years, and other people, strangers to me, people that, yeah, are my friends, but um, they don't, they shouldn't know him like, like I thought I knew him. They obviously know my husband better than I do. Like, I woke up one day and I didn't even, I felt like I didn't even know the man that I was married to anymore, like he was a complete stranger because the person that I thought he was, was completely different than what I was hearing from all the people around me and, and friends from high school that were, that were coming to me. So it was a huge blow to my self-esteem and my ego. And I started drinking a lot more. Um, we, we drank together as husband and wife. We had drinks for dinner, we would go to parties. Uh, but it was on the weekends. It, you know, I guess I could say maybe I was a social drinker back then. Um, but once I got divorced, it, it quickly turned into something that, that was out of control. And I got a GUI. That was the first time that I'd ever been in trouble with the law. And I was scared to death. I was mortified. I had a really good job. I started working for a company called Biolab as soon as I graduated from, from college. As a matter of fact, m one of my professors made the phone call for me because he knew someone within that company and actually got me the job there. I graduated on a, a Friday and, and went to work at Biolab on a Monday. So I had a, a really good job there. What I did was I, I worked on new recreational swimming pool chemicals for the company. And I, did, I started off doing research in the lab, testing chemicals to make sure that they effectively killed certain bacteria that is predominantly found in swimming pools. I worked on new algicides for the company. And then I, I progressed and went into uh, a different product development role where I actually traveled doing field trials and test markets. So once we tested the product in the lab, 
we went out and went to just different sites to make sure that it actually worked in the field, that it wasn't just something that worked in the lab, that we could take it out into the field as well. So I did do a lot of traveling, but I wasn't one of these people that, that completely lived out of, out of a suitcase. But I had a really, really good job. And so I did not want Biolab to know about my DUI. I was mortified. I, uh, I felt like I would lose my job. So I was bonded out immediately from, from jail. And, you know, at that point, I thought, okay, well, I'm just not going to, I'm not going to drink and drive. I wasn't going to give up my drinking, but I would give up driving if I was drinking. And um, I had some friends that, you know, learned that I got a divorce. And so my house kind of became a party house then where people would just come hang out. We'd drink and uh, party, get drunk, that sort of thing. And uh, someone introduced me to methamphetamines and someone that I'd went to school with. And it was like a dream come true. I had this euphoric feeling. I wasn't hungry anymore. I could lose the weight that I thought I needed to lose because my husband didn't you know, want me. He didn't want to be with me in that way. So there must be something wrong with me. I must be too, too big. Um, I could lose weight with really not having to do anything at all. I had energy to get whatever done that I needed to get done. I actually enjoyed cleaning my house <laughs> whenever I was on that drug. And what started out as something that I was only doing on the weekends turned into something I was doing every day because I would have been, a, I'd be up all weekend long. So come Monday when it's time for work, I needed a boost. I needed something to help me get up and, and go to work. The next thing you know, I'm shutting the door to my office, doing it there in my office to get me through the day. So needless to say, my performance suffers at work. And they, they certainly notice a, a difference in me. I'm leaving work early. I'm getting to work late. I, uh, I'm just not, I'm not the person that I used to be that they could count on. So Biolab ends up, they, are, they moved their offices from Decatur to Lawrenceville and they offered the employees the option of a severance package or the option to move with the company. By this time, I had, I had moved up on in the ranks where I was making really good money and Biolab had actually started paying for me to get my master's in marketing and finance. This is all going on while I, when I started with the meth use. But as my meth use got worse, uh, they, they said that I could no longer attend school. Uh, they, they would no longer pay for um, my master's because initially they thought that's what was causing my performance to suffer at work. That, you know, school was just too much for me, too much of a drain on me. But as time went on, they saw that, you know, even with me not going to school, my performance, it was still suffering. So I opted to take the severance package because it was just a matter of time before I got fired anyway. So at least with the severance package, I had some money, I had some time to find something else. Whereas if I'm just fired, you know, I, I, I don't even have the option of unemployment at, at that point. So I had a really good severance package about six weeks where I was still getting paid. Told myself I was gonna find a, 
a great job closer to home, that it was going to be a, a great opportunity. Of course, that didn't happen. I just stayed home and did more drugs. I did more meth, and I ended up isolating. And, you know, you start working on a project, and you just start dissecting everything. The next thing you know, 24 hours have passed, and you have not got one thing accomplished. So I used up my entire, you know, severance package, and I still don't have a job. I end up taking out a first-time mortgage on my home. My house was paid for. I took out a first-time mortgage because I had to have money for my habit. And I had to have spending money, and I had, I had blown my severance package. So, and I was able to get a first-time mortgage because I was very good at forging documents as well. Uh, I was able to make a bank statement that wasn't real, that was actually showing that I was, that I had income coming into the bank on a regular basis and provided that to the bank so that they would approve me for a loan. Um, so, you know, that right there is another felony that by the grace of God, I didn't get charged for. So they gave me a loan for $100,000 and all of that, I ended up blowing on drugs. I, after I was on meth for a while, I was introduced to Oxycontin from a boyfriend, someone that I, I had met that I'd actually went to school with at one time and we kind of gotten, had gotten reacquainted through a mutual friend and we started seeing one another. And at first, I didn't know that, that he was using anything. Of course, I had no room to talk. I was still, I was using meth. So, you know, I, I was in no position to, to get on to him for using anything. As a matter of fact, I was curious. I wanted to know what it was that he was using because I, I had not been turned on to that yet. I tried that. It wasn't long before I was very dependent on Oxycontin and I was doing it every single day. And my habit got to the point that I was doing roughly 800 milligrams of Oxycontin a day. That's very hard for a lot of people to believe because your doctors will tell you that that will kill you. There's no way that you could do that and still be alive. But that, um, that's true. I was doing 10 of the 80 milligram pills a day 800 milligrams and that was just to be normal that didn't happen overnight it took a while to get there you know I started off um, hardly doing anything at all but the the next thing I know my my tolerance is just out of control and I didn't even realize the what what I was actually doing just how serious that drug was I remember waking up one morning and I felt horrible. I mean, absolutely horrible and I was sick and I couldn't, I couldn't understand why I was sick because meth had never really done that to me. Yeah, I didn't have any energy on meth, but I wasn't sick or sick at my stomach. And I do another pill and I feel 100% better. And that's when it you know, really dawned on me that I'm starting to get addicted to this. But by this time, it's, it's too late. I didn't want to feel like that anymore. The drugs I had messed with in the past 
were drugs that, yeah, I needed it for energy, the meth for energy, but if I didn't have it, I wasn't going to be sick. I wasn't gonna be throwing up. I wasn't gonna be hurting. My body wasn't gonna ache all over. So that was something that was, was completely new to me. And then my life was just focused on finding pills, making sure that I had enough. And every single day, no matter how much I had gotten the day before, I was always looking for it the next day because the supply never lasted long enough. So needless to say, I, that $100,000 loan that I took out, it was gone in no time. Um, I also had a 401k from Biolab that I ended up cashing out and spending all of that, an additional $40,000 on, on pills, on Oxycontin. Um, I, was, I was truly out of control. When my money ran out, um, or I couldn't make the house payment that I now had because I'd taken out the first-time mortgage, my parents were, were eager to help. They didn't understand they didn't see what I had become yet because, I, of course, I was a master manipulator and I was good at keeping that from them and hiding those things. And also, they didn't want to see that in their daughter. I'm the youngest of three. I was their baby. I was the only girl, the girl that they had been wanting, you know, and, and looking forward to. And they didn't want to see that in me. No, Sherry would never do that. Sherry's been to college. Sherry's got a degree in microbiology, a minor in chemistry. Sherry knows better than that. Sherry's smart enough to, to leave those things alone. Um, so they, they didn't see that for the longest time. They just thought that, you know, well, I, I hadn't found a job yet. I was actively looking for a job and they were gonna help me until I could get back on my feet. And I remember one time my dad, he was so sweet, he came over and I had been unemployed for a while and mooching off of them and uh, he was making my house payment so I wouldn't lose my house. And you know, I was really close with my dad. I was close with my mom too, but I was really close with my dad too. And we had a lot in common and he came over to talk to me one day and he, he called me Button. And he said, Button, I really need you. I really need you to get a job. You know, even if it's one that is not your dream job, I just really need you to get a job right now. Mom and Dad, you know, me and Mom, we can't, we can't keep helping you in this capacity. And it was just so sweet. It wasn't, it wasn't being mean. It wasn't saying that you're, you're breaking us or anything. Just that, you know, we really need for you to do this. And... I wanted to do it. I did. You know, I wanted my parents to be proud of me and I didn't want them to see what I had become. But my life was, it was like, all I could do, all I had time to do was to look for my next fix. Because my pills ran out, I had to go find more the next day. I had several different people that I purchased from. I had a prescription of my own that would run out in like three days. I was driving sometimes two hours one way to be able to get enough to for, for my habit. So there was, there was no time 
for me to look for a job or go on job interviews because all my time was spent running looking for pills. So <clears throat> I finally had enough of it and I went to a methadone clinic. And some people are completely against methadone clinics. Um, in, a, in a way, the methadone clinic helped to save my life at that period in my life because I could not stop on my own. The withdrawals were so bad. Um, I've never been suicidal, but that is one time in my life that I said that if I had to go through that without help, that I would kill myself. I, I, I couldn't stand it. Just you feel like you want to jump out of your skin. Um, you're hurting all over. You're hurting in places that shouldn't even hurt, that you've not injured, that there's no reason for you to hurt there. No matter what position you turn in, you are hurting. You can't get comfortable. And I'm telling you this because, um, not to make excuses, but just to let you know that, um, because I know you're all here for your children and, and going through similar things with your children. And, you know, you get to a point to where, like, your body, it's like it's telling you it has to have it to survive. And we do things that we're embarrassed, that we're ashamed of, that are horrible things, but that's not who we really are. That's that drug telling us that we have to have it, that we need that to survive. And we are scared to death of what kind of condition that we're gonna be in if we don't have it. I was scared to death to wake up in the morning and not have something to take. I was scared of, number one, my parents finding out, why, why am I so sick? Why can't I get out of the bed? Um, I felt like I had to have it to be, I did have to have it to be functional at that point. So the methadone clinic, it, it helped me um, be stable, but it's still a narcotic. It's still something that's addictive. It's still something I had to come off of. Um, I, the difference with that, I dosed once a day instead of multiple times a day with doing the pills. I didn't take the pills orally, I snorted them. A lot of people, um, that's how they start off doing it. Uh, when I, I, I did stop doing the Oxycontin while I was at the methadone clinic, but I, I went back and, and started doing meth again. I would just kind of flip-flop back and forth, trade one drug for another. Um, try to get off you know, one thing, but end up back on something else, or use something else to help me get off of of, of one drug, but you know that drug ended up just being just as bad. Um, my life was was just as out of control, no matter what I switched back and forth from. Um, so during this time, like I said, I started using meth again, and the meth by this time I'd been using it off and on for years and years and years, along with the pills. Had not tried heroin yet, um, was still just doing the pills or going to the methadone clinic. But meth made me, it got to a point that it made me absolutely crazy. What, what turned, what in the beginning was just giving me energy, um, making me skinny and beautiful, so I thought. 
um, turned into something that was absolutely making me psychotic. I thought things were going on that really weren't going on. I was hearing voices and I actually thought there were people outside my house. It was, it was voices that I recognized. Sometimes I would hear my brother's voice or I would hear the voices of old friends. And there was no convincing me that somebody was not there because I could hear it. And I, there, you couldn't talk any, any sense into me. I was not admitting that I was doing any drugs. So no one um, could say, hey, Sherry, it's the drugs that you're doing. You know, that's what's causing this. Because I, I was lying. I wasn't going to admit that I was doing anything. So I started responding to all this outside stimuli, to this, uh, the, the paranoia, the craziness, as if it was real. And at one point, I broke almost every window in my house with a golf club because I got so angry because I thought people were outside and they wouldn't show their face. And they were familiar voices. One of the voices sounded just like my brother and I thought, what is my brother doing out there? And I just got so angry. And as I continued to use, that's what the meth did. It made me very angry, very volatile, very aggressive. and. Like John had mentioned when he introduced me, I have a lot of big boy charges, well, convictions actually, where um, they were all when I was on meth, it was all as a result of, of things that I thought were going on that weren't going on. I was convicted of aggravated assault in another state, in the state of Florida. I went to prison in Florida as well as in Georgia. I was convicted of arson in the first degree I tried to blow up a police car, and that was the arson in the first degree charge. Luckily, I was not successful because I put paper in the gas tank, was trying to light it on fire. My lighter wouldn't work. The wind was blowing so hard whenever I got there. It was the, the, the lot where they kept all of the, the police vehicles. And there was also an underground storage tank there too. They also fueled up the police vehicles there as well. So had I been successful, I probably would have blown up the whole lot, myself included. But I wasn't, I wasn't thinking that far in advance. I wasn't trying to blow myself up. I thought it was a great idea. I thought, you know, that I was doing the, the community a favor because I kept going to jail and it seemed like the same police officer kept arresting me kept coming, and so I thought he had it out for me. I mean, it surely couldn't be that he just happened to be the one that got the call that that was his area to police. You know, it had to be more than that. It had to be that he was specifically targeting me and stalking me for, for some reason. Those are the kind of thoughts that I was having. So, you know, I was gonna take out his car. He was gonna have trouble coming to get me next time. That, um, but, you know, like I said, when I got home, my lighter worked. It wasn't due to the lighter not working. It was, it, I do believe that that was the grace of God with the wind blowing so hard because I would not be here right now if I would have been successful in blowing up that police car. Of course, they got me on camera because I was at the lot where they keep the police vehicles. There's not going to be police vehicles if there's not cameras there. 
But again, I wasn't thinking about that. And so a week later, they came and got me at my home, took me to jail. Um, most of uh, the times that I, and I had been to jail prior to this, I was no, um, I, I was not new to jail. I had been several times for, one time it was for forging a prescription because I couldn't find it anywhere. All my sources were out, I had to have it. So I forged a prescription, I got caught. Um, went to jail for that. Like I said, I had the DUI. Um, went to jail for trying to blow up a police car. I went to jail also for uh, third degree arson. One time when I was on meth, I would go to my parents' house a lot even though I had my own home because I, I would think that demons were after me. And so I would I would think, okay, my parents' house is safe. My mom is an organist. My dad's a deacon in the church. They're not gonna be there. And I mean, this is just how crazy that I was on the drugs. Now, having said that, I do believe that when we do certain drugs that we do open a door to the demonic realm and allow things in um, that we never had any intention on letting in or that we never should have. We were never intended to let in in that manner. So I, I do believe that. Um, but I was in no frame of mind to be able to reason with nor to, to even understand that at that point in my life. So I would go to my parents and, you know, when I would have some of the same experiences there, and think that I saw demons and think that I could feel them, I thought this one time I said, you know what, if you're not gonna, my, my thought process is, well, if you're not gonna leave me alone, then I'm gonna make it just as bad here as it is in hell where you're from and I'm gonna burn you back to hell. And I set my parents' mattress on fire. And not completely, but I just would let it smolder. Again, um, that's the things that were, were going through my mind. Now, if you were somebody from the outside looking in, you didn't know what was going through my mind. You didn't know the crazy thoughts that I was having. I didn't tell you that I was seeing demons and things like that because I was afraid you were gonna lock me away in a psychiatric ward because I knew that sounded crazy. But I also like couldn't tell the difference between like reality and and what wasn't real either. So as an outsider looking in, you, you would have to think that I had absolutely either completely lost my mind, had some sort of medical condition, maybe you're hoping that I have a medical condition, a tumor or something that is causing me to act this way, that's pressing on a part of the brain. I, my family ended up having my, my head scanned for a tumor um, in hopes, and it's really sad, in hopes that that's what it was. Because they, you know, that's explainable. That's, you know, the way I was acting was not explainable. Like why are, why is their daughter that went to college, you know, that, um, you know, that, that would, took, they had in piano lessons, that took ballet, that, you know, um, that they had such high expectations for setting my mattress on fire. You know, um, why is she breaking every window in the house? Because when I lost my house, I moved into my, my grandmother's house that was next door to my parents. 
I broke every window in her house twice. And again, if you were an outsider looking in, you would think that I was just mean, that I had no regard for anybody's property or for my parents, that I, you would think that I didn't love my parents, that I detested my parents, that um, you would think that I was probably the biggest piece of crap that you had ever come in contact with by my actions because you didn't know what was going through my head. You didn't know that at times I was really scared. You know, I was acting out of fear. It didn't really make sense. I mean, looking back now, I, I think of some of the things and some of them are kind of comical, the, the thoughts that I was having and the way that I responded. But it wasn't at the time. It wasn't for my parents. It wasn't for my family because they couldn't understand what was going on and, and what was going through my mind. Um, you know, did I have a mental problem? They were, like I said, hoping for the tumor. Um, I was destroying their property. I, I slashed the tires on my dad's truck one time. And that was, that was because I had already, I had totaled my vehicle. My dad had let me drive his truck out of the kindness of his heart because I didn't have a vehicle. I was still doing drugs. I thought somebody was after me. I, I thought demons were after me again. I was scared. I got in the truck and I took off. I ended up in the, the woods somewhere. I ended up losing his keys in the woods, um, just running from things that weren't there. Um, and I don't even know how I made it back home that night, but I, I, it wasn't in the truck because I lost the keys. My dad had to have his truck towed back. He towed it back to my house because, it, you know, I still needed a vehicle to drive. That same night, I go out and I slash my dad's tires on his truck. I don't, I don't know why. I honestly don't know why I did that. You know, I don't even know what was going through my mind at that time. It wasn't to be, to be mean to my dad or to get back at my dad for anything. I just, I just did it. And I remember just sitting there bawling after I had, had done that. And in through, through all of this, you know, my parents are trying to get me help. They're trying to figure out, you know, what all is going, going on. And my dad asked me, one of the times that I was sober, that the fog had lifted, and he was in the car taking me somewhere, and he says, Button, can you, can you tell me why you slashed my tires? <laughs> I couldn't. I couldn't. I, I couldn't tell him why I, I had slashed his tires, and at the same time, I couldn't tell him what all I was addicted to and, and what I had become, and that probably would have been easier for him to handle because at least he would have known. But I, <clears throat> I was so afraid somebody was going to put me somewhere. Um, and I know I'm kind of jumping around all over the place. It's, it's hard to keep it in a specific timeline because so much has happened. And I've been 
convicted of so many different things that um, it's, it's hard to remember what happened exactly when. But that just came to, to mind for some reason. I, I Maybe the Lord just wanted me to share that. Um, <clears throat> so I'm in and out of jail. I, um, and, and it's due to not really drug charges. It's due just to, to my violent tendencies from being on drugs. Um, I'd always had enough money um, through my parents. My, it, was, it was their money at this point to, to get me out. They spent, there's no telling what they spent on bonds, bonding me out of jail. There's no telling what they spent on attorneys to get me out of trouble. So up until <clears throat> I got charged with the first degree arson, when I tried to blow up the police car, I had, I had gotten out of just about everything that I had done um, with probation. And, and usually I could, I could work probation to where <clears throat> that wasn't a problem. But when I got charged with the first degree arson, that was a different story. I got a judge. Many of you may have heard of her being from Cobb County, Judge Grubbs. She's a no-nonsense judge. She doesn't put up with it. It doesn't matter how good your attorney is or, or who your attorney is. It's Judge Grubbs. And, <laughs> and so... Um, at the time, my attorney told me that. He said, you got the worst judge in Cobb County. Um, looking back, she was, it was probably a blessing to have Judge Grubbs. At the time, I didn't see it as a blessing. She gave me a chance. She, she gave me, when I went in front of her the first time for the first degree arson charge, she gave me a chance. She didn't send me to prison, even though I, I already had a rap sheet. She gave me 10 years probation. Um, I thought that was that was doable. Um, I could still use. I could still, you know, even though I'm drug tested, I could I could work the system. I had learned how to work the system by then. But <clears throat> what I couldn't work was when I decided to go to Florida one weekend for Memorial Day and party and not get permission from probation because I'm thinking I'll be back before they could even know that I'm gone. And I'm partying in Florida, also taking Xanax. You know, in, in this time I start, I, I get on Xanax as, as well. Um, I pass out at the wheel and hit a telephone pole. Total my parents' car. Um, that is probably, that's the second car that I totaled of theirs. So I go I go to jail because I get a DUI in Florida. Somehow, somehow I was able to get bonded out because I actually was on probation in Florida uh, for uh, an incident a few years prior where I was, I was there for the summer. My parents had a place in Panama City, so I would go down there you know, frequently and I decided to stay one summer and I was on meth and I, I did something crazy. I thought I heard people outside. I thought I heard voices. I thought it had to be the neighbors. The neighbors have to be taunting me. What are they, you know, what are they doing standing out there messing with me for? 
So I, how do I get them back? I slash their tires. And I, I know. Um, <laughs> and I was charged with aggravated assault, which still kind of baffles me to this day because it was a vehicle. I didn't know you could you know, assault a vehicle, mm -hmm. but evidently in the state of Florida, you can assault a vehicle. Um, but needless to say, I did do, I did slash their tires. I, I was in a, a very scary frame of mind. So I was on first offenders in Florida. So I was on probation, first offenders probation for that you know, particular charge there. So when I got the DUI, I don't know how I slipped through it. I should have had a hold. And you know, the brother that I have, um, and I don't, I don't think John mentioned this, it was something that we had talked about over dinner, but one of my, my brothers who, he, he didn't think that I was gonna, gonna make it this time in, in rehab. He was, he was very disappointed in me. He thought that there was no hope for me. Um, he thought that I, I was gonna, he'd been down this road with me before and I was gonna always be an addict and always be a problem. It was that brother that talked my parents into getting me out of jail when I got the DUI and, and totaled their car in Florida. And I say, I, I say that because um, my brother used to believe in me, you know. I was his little sister that um, could do nothing wrong, that was, you know, going to do big things in life that... Um, you know, that went to college. I was the first one in my family to go to college. You know, they were really proud of me for that. And so even though he gave up on me in the end, it took a while for him to get there because he was also one of them that was fighting for me along the way. And um, when my parents were, were done and, and didn't want to spend one more dime to get me out of jail, he was like, Mom, get her, get her out of jail. Don't leave her in there. He said, I'll pay for it if you can't. So no wonder he was heartbroken when I went to jail this last time two years ago. No wonder. No wonder he called me a master manipulator. No wonder he didn't want me to have the inheritance that my family would one day leave because my brother knew that my parents would be leaving us quite a, an inheritance and he just he he thought it would go in my arm like no wonder he didn't want that um you know he was devastated so i was able to get bonded out even though i shouldn't have been i should have had a hold because i was on probation in florida i come back to georgia they find out because i'd went to jail um, and Judge Grubbs, first violation, no nonsense. She said, I gave you a chance the first time around. You're not getting a chance again. And she sent me straight to prison for that. Prison was probably one of the worst experiences of my life and also one of the best experiences of my life. Um, I was extremely hard-headed um, you couldn't tell me anything. I had to, I had to learn it for myself. And until I was made to sit down in prison, 
um, I would have I would have just kept going I wasn't I didn't see what I was doing to my life I didn't see what I was doing to the people's lives around me I felt like it was my life I could live it the way I wanted to live it I'm not hurting you um, you have a life you live your life the way you want to live your life and you let me live my life the way I want to live my life and if I want to put drugs in my body this is my body and it's my choice to do that so stop trying to live my life for me and let me live my life that was my that was my attitude I, I couldn't see beyond that um, I'm gonna go on to this next slide just to show you um, these are some of my mug shots along the way um, as you can see drugs and alcohol certainly took its toll. I hope that I look like a different person today. Please don't tell me that I resemble any of these photos. <laughs> um, but yeah, um, those are all within the last probably 10 years. That being the most recent, the one on the right, the most recent mugshot. Um, It's hard to look at sometimes <laughs> because at the time you don't see what you've turned into. You don't, you don't see yourself that way. Um, you don't see the monster that you've become because of the drugs and alcohol. Um, so <clears throat> in prison, uh, well, before, I, I just want to tell you this, before I went to prison, I did, um, I did start using heroin. Um, I became an IV drug user before I ever went to prison because the pills became too expensive. Um, methadone just wasn't doing it anymore. I, I couldn't afford the habit. Heroin was cheaper. It would last longer. I could get more bang for my buck. So I told myself I had to do that. You know, even though I said I would never do heroin, I told myself I had to, because that's the only thing I can afford. Um, and then, you know, the, the next thing I know, I'm, I'm sticking a needle in my arm. And I, I, I always said I would never do that, but you're, you're looking for ways to make it last longer and that was a way that it would last longer. I could get more bang for my buck, as bad as that sounds. And once, once you start using a needle, it's, there's nowhere else to go except prison or the ground. I've never met an old heroin addict. I never have. You just don't see that. They're gone or they're in prison. So, <clears throat> Going to, to, to prison, it, it, it saved my life um, because that dried me out, something that I, I couldn't do on, on my own. I couldn't do it in the real world. If you made me do it, well, I had to. And it was brutal, don't get me wrong, it was brutal. Being in a jail cell and coming off those drugs, it was horrible. And it was probably 
just as horrible on my parents because don't think I wasn't calling them using that to try to get out. You know, but the thing was is I'd gotten myself into a position where they couldn't get me out. I didn't have a bond. I couldn't get a bond. Um, but I'm so grateful that 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 happened to me in my life that I finally got to a point where there was no getting me out of trouble. I'm, I'm grateful for a Judge Grubbs that uh, wouldn't give me another chance, that made me go to prison. Because in prison, I, due to the nature of my charge, it being violent, first degree arson, I was in a maximum security prison for the time that I was there. I was there for 10 months, maximum security. So the majority of the people that I was in prison with were lifers. Um, there were some people that, you know, their average sentence was around 10 years because it was armed robbery. Um, I was in prison with somebody that, uh, it was vehicular homicide. She was killed somebody behind the wheel of a car when she was drunk. And, but that was probably the, um, most like nonviolent charge that, that you found in the prison where I was at. My bunkie, she had had someone kill her father for money uh, to get drugs. And she had gotten involved in, in gangs and things like that. And she had, she had paid somebody because she, she needed a fix. And, and I remember her telling me that she wished she could take it back that she, she, you know, she regrets the whole thing, but that there's, there's nothing that she can do any, you know, what's done is done and she's there for life. Um, I was in there with, with a woman who she was in, in there for capital murder. They had killed a police officer, her and her boyfriend. And so she was in there for life. And you know, some of these women, you would, you would never imagine that they had done something like that. Um, some of them, you would. <laughs> you could see that they would do something like that. But some of them, you, you couldn't imagine that. But it, it didn't make any difference because they're still in there for life. That, that doesn't change anything. And I realized that that could be me that's sitting in there for life. The way that I was acting the things that I was doing, the violent tendencies that I had, trying to blow up a police car, you know, that's, that's insane. Who does that? Um, setting a mattress on fire, like, I, I mean, I, thank goodness nobody was in the house, but, but what if, what if I had done that in the middle of the night while my parents were asleep and, and, and did it in the guest bedroom? thinking demons were after me, and the house accidentally caught on fire, and they couldn't get out in time. Like, I would never be able to live with myself knowing that, but that's real life. Those things happen to people when they're on drugs and they're doing crazy things. Um, so I realized for the first time that that could be me sitting in that cell for life, not having the opportunity to get out and, and change my life. Um, I started reading my Bible 
a lot more than I ever had. Um, I, I started going to church there in, in the chapel in prison. And I remember, this was like the first time that I had ever really cracked my Bible open, except for when I was a little girl to memorize the 23rd Psalm. I'd, even though I'd been brought up in church, I'd never opened a Bible, I'd never read the Bible. But you have a lot of time on your hands, especially when you're in the diagnostic portion of prison. Um, so I, I spent a lot of time reading the Bible and I, I realized one day that I was, was having a hard time believing what I was reading. That um, I didn't understand, you know, why certain things, you know, happened the way that they did in the Bible. Like I said earlier, why Jesus had to die for us. Um, I didn't, I didn't believe necessarily that somebody would do that, would go through that type of, of torture and pain for us and why it was necessary. Um, and I remember thinking that, you know what, I can't keep reading this if I'm doubting. What good is it doing? What good is it for me to read the Word of God if I don't believe the Word of God? So I got on my knees in my cell. My bunkie, she was at, she was at work. So there was, there was no one around. No one saw me. No one knew that I prayed this prayer except for me and God. And I got on my knees, and it was just a really simple prayer. I was like, Lord, I'm, I'm sorry that I'm doubting. I'm sorry that I'm having a hard time believing what I'm reading because I was brought up to believe in you. I was brought up to have faith. But I don't know why I, I, I don't believe what I'm reading. I don't know why I'm struggling with believing that you're real. But I want to believe. But I don't know how to change that. I don't know how to fix it. I don't know how to make myself believe. I need your help. And that was the end of the prayer. And I went to church that Sunday. And it was a woman that I'd never seen before, and she asked if anyone needed prayer, and I made a beeline down for the altar because I wanted to know. I either wanted to believe or not believe, but, but make a decision, you know. So she, there was about 20 of us, that had, 19, 20 of us that had went down, and she just went down the line laying her hands on each woman's head, praying in tongues, going to the next person, going to the next person. Then she got to me, laid her hand on my head, prayed in tongues over me. Then she stopped and she stared at me. She looked me dead in the eye. And I'm the only person she said anything to. She looked me dead in the eye and she said, He is real. You never have to doubt that. And went to the next person. And I knew. I knew that was, that was God. Like that switch was flipped. It was flipped, and I knew he was real. I knew Jesus was real, you know, because nobody, no, I didn't even know this woman. Nobody knew I prayed that prayer. Nobody knew I was struggling like that but him. And after all the things that I had done in my past, the the things that I had done to my, my parents and my family and the decisions that I made, he still met me where I was and gave me what I needed to believe for that switch to be flipped. Because, you know, 
really we should be, and the Bible says we should be able to look around us and believe. We should be able to see creation and know that there is a God. I had no excuse, no reason not to believe. But that's the grace of God. So I tell you that just to tell you that there is always hope. There is always hope. No matter how far a person falls, no matter what they've done, where they end up, there is always hope. Don't give up. Do not give up. Keep praying. Keep believing. Keep trusting in the Lord. Because I was the worst of the worst. I did things that I've just really been able to talk about within the last year. And even then, it's still hard. I almost shot my dad. At one point in my addiction, I was just, I was so crazy and so out of it. It's by the grace of God that the bullet didn't hit him. And I had, I had, because he's passed away, I had a father that didn't deserve that. He was a good man. He loved me. He did everything and more for me. And it turned me into someone that would hurt her father. So I, I say that because no matter what your child has done, no matter how far he has fallen, there is hope. God can turn them around. And it... I'm not going to say it's not difficult, because it is. It's hard. It's hard to face then what you've done. Um, you know, even though, yes, I know I'm forgiven. I know that I'm forgiven, but it's it's still hard to face. And, and because a lot of the times I would continue to medicate myself so that I didn't have to face what I had done you know, and, and deal with the pain and the embarrassment and just the mortification that I caused my family. I was on the six o'clock news for trying to blow up that police car. I was on the front page of the paper. Do you not think they, my parents were mortified when they walk in church? My dad being a deacon and my mom the organist, that their daughter was on the news trying to blow up a police car? and on the front page of the paper. I remember they even lost friends as a result. Some of the friends that used to come over and play um, dominoes with them quit coming. But it didn't make them love me any less. They still prayed for me. They still hoped. Uh, I remember my mom telling me one time I was it was this last time when I went to jail because even after, even after I met the Lord in prison, I still had a, a relapse that I went through. Um, I remember my mom saying, I was apologizing and apologizing and apologizing, and she said, sweetie, that's why pencils have erasers. <laughs> you know that. She was so forgiving. 
You know, she was so forgiving. <laughs> but, the, you know, even though that switch was flipped and I changed, I, I did change when I was in prison. I was different. I, I could have skipped out of that church. You know, I was just, I could tell I was different. The people around me told me that I glowed. They, they could see a difference in me. Like, I knew... Because the next Sunday, I, I made my profession of faith, you know, at the, the prison. And um, I just remember thinking, I don't want this feeling to go away. I felt like I was high, but I was high on life. The only way I knew, or the only thing I knew to compare it to was being high on drugs. Like when you first start using them before they destroy you. Um, and I was like, I want to feel like this all the time. And I remember getting involved with the volunteers there. And... Um, you know, asking them questions about, you know, I was so afraid that it was going to be taken away, that I was going to do something, it was going to be taken away from me. Because you know, I was like this little kid, like, I, you know, I didn't understand everything, even though I was, had been brought up in church. You know, you got to listen, even though you go to church. doesn't matter if you just go. Um, so, <clears throat> I guess, I didn't, when I finally got out of prison, I didn't, I didn't follow up with a good church family, you know. I didn't surround myself with people who could explain things to me um, that could help me grow as a brand new Christian, as a brand new child of God. Um, so a, a little bit of time passes and old friends call. You think you're strong enough to hang out with them. You even think, you know what, maybe I can help them. Even though we're kidding ourselves, there's, there's no way. The chances that somebody else is going to pull you down is far greater than you're going to pull them back up, especially being that, um, that new to, to, to Christ and that newly saved. Um, and so I, I made that mistake, and yes, I got pulled right back down. The difference this time and the time befores, before whenever... Um, I would relapse was that I was strongly convicted. I was strongly convicted. And I knew that I did not want to meet my maker that way. I knew that I was not designed to be an addict. I knew that that was not my destiny. Um, <clears throat> I knew that God had so much more for me and in store for my life than what I was doing the problem was I had I went right back to that needle, like wasted no. When I when I relapsed, I relapsed all the way. I mean, to my in in my head, if I'm if I'm going to do it again, I'm going to do it all the way. And once I did that, there was I don't know how to explain it other than I wanted to stop, but I couldn't stop. And I know that sounds so crazy and it makes no sense because you think well if you want to do something you're going to do it because I would say the same thing but but I but I did it was I, I really I don't know how any other way to explain it other than that I, I, I did want to stop I didn't want to meet Jesus that way I didn't want Jesus to to see me that way but I just couldn't couldn't stop doing it so I kept praying I was praying that God would help me without sending me back to prison. That was my prayer. And even though I was sticking a needle in my arm, I would pray almost every day that God would help me 
without sending me back to prison, that he would do for me what I could not do for myself. I couldn't walk into a rehab. I couldn't, I couldn't tell my parents again. After I had been so excited and on fire for the Lord when I got out of prison, I couldn't tell them I'd relapsed again because they were so excited. <laughs> So my, I, it just keeps getting worse, but I'm continuing to pray this prayer. I'm continuing to read my Bible. Um, and one day, I, I get, it's, it was like this, this clip that you inserted into my, my head. I, I don't know any other way to describe it. It was like you had taken a picture and just put it in my mind and it was so vivid and it was so clear and it happened three times in a row bam 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 and the picture was of Cobb County Jail um, and I it just out of the blue that that is what the picture that I got in my mind and I I knew it had to be from the Holy Spirit because I did not daydream about Cobb County Jail like that was not something that would be on my mind at all but I didn't understand it. I didn't know. I didn't know what exactly what it meant. There was this fear in me that maybe I was going to be going back to jail. But at the same time, I told myself, "But wait a minute! I've been praying that He'd help me without sending me back to prison." <laughs> so, um, sure enough, the very next day, I get pulled over and I go to jail. Um, so, but again, it was—it's um, what I had been praying for. Because I, he did get me help without sending me back to prison. I did have to sit in jail for two months before I got the opportunity to go to Good Landing Recovery. Um, but you know what? Sitting in jail two months is nothing for somebody like me that's been in and out of jail. And that's a small price to pay for the opportunity um, to get the help to, for the opportunity to do something that, that I was not able to do on my own. That's where I met John. John represented me then. Um, John was the one that fought for me to get me in rehab because this was my third violation. Judge um, Grubbs had retired by then. <laughs> so I stood a little bit of chance. God was looking out for me then. And, and I don't mean that bad because she was a blessing in the beginning. But boy, I was so grateful that she had retired by the time that third violation came around. Um, so, I, you know, I was given the opportunity to come to, to go to Good Landing Re Recovery. And I know that that was the place that God wanted me because John had given me two options of re a rehab. And I'm going to try to wind up soon because I know I'm, I've been very long-winded. He'd given me the option of two rehabs. I forget the name of the second one, but I just, I remember him telling me, you know, let me know by Friday. I need to know by Friday. And, you know, I had looked into both of them. He'd, he'd shown me, you know, the information on our, our video visits on, on each rehab. And it was just very important to me that I went where God wanted me to go. There was quite a bit of a price difference between the two of them. And I didn't have insurance. And so naturally, I was leaning towards the cheaper one. And, but I thought, 
you know what, Lord, I need your guidance because I'm going to pick something for the wrong reason. I'm going to pick it just because it's cheaper. And I want to be where you want me to be. This is important. It is important that I get this right this time and that I don't relapse again. Um, because, you know, I just, I wanted, because my relationship with him, it was, it was messed up as a result of that relapse. Like, I didn't have that closeness. I didn't feel his presence that I was feeling after I got saved. And it was, um, it was a horrible feeling. I just wanted that back, you know, like a little child who, who screws up and, um, you know, is just telling their mom and dad, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. You know, that's how I felt. Um, so I remember there at the last minute, I, I wasn't getting anything. John kept saying, he said, you know what, you'll feel a peace about it. You know, go with whichever one you feel peace about. I wasn't feeling peace over either one of them. You know, I didn't. And I find, I told the Lord that. I was like, Lord, I'm not getting any peace over this, and I have to know. And all of a sudden, the same, it was just like the clip that I got of Cobb County Jail before I went to jail. I got a clip of one of the classrooms that John had showed me in Good Landing Recovery. And I knew then, and it was while I was praying that, I knew then that that's where God wanted me. And I'm not saying that that's the rehab that God wants everybody at by any means. But I am saying it was the rehab that God knew that I would be successful at that I would strengthen my relationship with him, that I would get to know him better, that people would fight for me, that they would actually let me in there because John had a hard time finding rehabs that would actually even consider allowing me to come there because of my violent um, track record my, and, and my charges. And even, and even they were a little bit, Trey was a little bit like, I don't know if we can take her or not. But you know what? I knew, I knew I was going there because God wouldn't have given me that clip if he wasn't going to work it out for me. And he did. He worked it out for me and I went to Good Landing and I remember John telling me, Sherry, you need to stay there two years. You need to stay there. Wherever you go, you need to stay there two years. If you don't stay there two years, you don't stand a chance. And I remember thinking, it's a three-month program. I was cash pay. Because I didn't have insurance, I'm thinking, how am I going to stay there two years at rehab prices? <laughs> how am I going to do that? And because I wanted to do what he recommended, because doing things my way in the past had landed me in prison twice. Because I didn't even get to me going to prison in Florida, but you know that's for another time. Prison is prison. Uh, <laughs> so um, I thought, how in the world am I going to do that? How am I going to afford to do that? Um, because really all the money that I had allotted for rehab was going to be gone in three months. So I thought, you know what, we'll, we'll cross that bridge when we get there. And I'll worry about that at that time. And, you know, this is how amazing that God is. Like, he knows ex exactly what you need. He knew exactly what I needed. He knew that I couldn't afford to stay in that sober living and, and pay out of, out of pocket for two years without, without a job. He knew how unemployable I was based on my track record. And literally after I graduated the program, um, I was given the opportunity to work at Good Landing to start out as a house manager. I did have to do two months of sober living because Trey wanted me to have a certain amount of clean time under my belt 
before he actually put me on as paid staff, but he, um, he discounted the, the rate that, that I would have to pay for those two months. And now, you know, um, for the past two years, I've gotten paid to live in a sober environment, to stay at the very rehab that um, I know God put me in from the very beginning. Um, they're paying me to be there, to be have a sober network, to still get the same tools that I got when I was in the program, but then I also get a chance to give back to the women. I get to see transformations right before my very eyes, which is such a blessing in itself to be able to see the way some of these women come in and the mess that they are and see them completely transformed by the time the three months is up. I mean, to the point where you've got, you've got women that said they were going to give it two weeks or they were going to give it 30 days and that's it. That's all you were getting out of them that are staying past their graduation date because they know that that's what they need and it's, that is critical for them to stay sober. Um, and I hope it doesn't sound like I'm giving all the credit to Good Landing because I don't mean to do that at all. God gets all the glory and all the credit because like, he's the one that opened, opened my eyes, that met me where I was at, that gives me a reason to stay sober um, because I know that there's more out there, that there's more for me, that there's a future for, for me, that there's something, you know, once I leave this world, that there's a, there's a purpose, there's an eternity for me. And I look forward to meeting him one day. Um, and, and it's just, like I said, it's a blessing to see, to see that happen in the, the, the women that come in and get to work in an environment to where I see that. Um, I want to, I'll just, that was just showing the, some of my charges, the severity of the charges. Um, I'm kind of going backwards instead of forwards, but you see the arson first degree, my incarceration details. Um, I was also, I was charged with um, a dangerous drugs act, a miscellaneous arson charge, two obstruction of a law enforce, enforcement officer, criminal interference with government property. I mean, they, they slapped a lot on me. Um, but. I was I was guilty of all of it. John and I and John Fair and I were talking at at dinner, and he was like, "How many felonies do you have?" I think I, I rattled off six that I could think of right then, just from from crazy things. So when I say that I'm unemployable, I'm unemployable, you know, because they're not just little drug charges; they're violent charges. They're things that companies they don't even want to take us, you know glance at you when you come in with charges like that. But you know what? God's bigger than that. And, you know, like I said, I have, I'm in a place where I'm surrounded by a sober network. Um, I'm getting paid for it. I have a roof over my head and I'm getting to give back. Um, I'm now over the women's program at Good Landing Recovery. When I started in the program, we had two apartments 
now we have, we're getting our sixth apartment tomorrow. Um, so it's just been amazing what God has done in my life, where he has brought me from um, to where he's brought me to now. Like, I truly have a future. Um, Trey, the CEO, we've talked about me going back to school to get my counseling degree, possibly working there as a counselor for him. Like, the options are endless the way that Good Landing is growing. So God took an unemployable wreck and um, has given, given her a future that she never ever thought she could have again. You know, and um, I just wanna, I wanna stress that. I wanna leave you with that. I wanna encourage you with that. Because if he can do it for me, he can do it for your children. I'm nothing special. I am nothing special. He's not done anything for me that he would not do for any one of his children. This is um, something I wanted just to, to leave you with because you saw the my mug shots and um, this is me today. Hi, my name is Sherry. I um, came from a really good family. My dad was a deacon in the church and my mom was an organist. I um, went to college. I got a degree in microbiology. I didn't come from a background of drugs and alcohol. And my addiction started when my marriage fell apart and my husband was unfaithful to me. And I just started spiraling out of control. I started using meth. I started using pills. And then I started using heroin. I started doing things that I said I would never do. And and I turned into a monster. I have been to jail over 13 times. I've been to prison twice. Prison was my worst nightmare, but also my greatest blessing. That's where I had my first encounter with Jesus. I was in prison and got on, the, on my knees in my cell one day and I prayed this simple prayer. I was like, God, I'm doubting if you're real. I'm doubting if what I'm reading in the Bible is real. And I wanna know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you're real, I don't wanna doubt anymore. And I went to church that Sunday at the prison and the minister at the end of the service asked if anyone wanted to come down for prayer. And when she got to me, she laid her hand on my head and she looked me dead in the eye and she said, he is real. You never have to doubt that. And that day changed my life. But the struggle was not over. I relapsed twice after that. And through those relapses, I was praying that God would not send me back to to prison, but that he would help me. And that's exactly what he did. He sent me to Good Landing Recovery. And here I've learned that I need to change people, places, and things. I've learned that I need to serve people. I've learned what it means to, to love people. I've learned what it means to walk it out. I've learned how to be a new person in Christ. And I've learned that Jesus is my recovery and that my recovery is Jesus. And I'm so grateful for a place that uh, believes in that as well. Mm -hmm.